0: Hi, welcome back to Let's Talk About Race, a podcast where we discuss the nuanced issues around race in America and attempt to dial down the yelling in order to have real discussion. Uh, today, I'm very honored to be joined by a very special guest, the author of the book, History of White People, and an Edwards Professor of American History and Emerita at Princeton University, Professor Nell Painter. Uh, thank you so much for joining us.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Um, so I was very interested in your book. Um, I guess we'll kind of dive right into it. Um, there's a lot to cover, but let's start with the very beginning. You know, what is the first time that we actually see the term "white" being used as a descriptor as it relates to race?
1: Okay. So uh, first of all, my book is called *The History of White People*. That came to my mind because the, the French edition is being published early next year, and the question of translation came up between *l'histoire* the history, or histoire, history, and of course it's l'histoire, the history. Now, I start with uh, the ancient Greeks uh, because so many Americans believe that we can read our understandings of race backwards 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years, and that is not the case. So I had to sort that out first, because the idea of races of people, this is taxonomy, starts in the Enlightenment of the 18th century, the 18th century, not before the birth of Christ. So the 18th century, and particularly the 19th century, when so many intellectuals in Europe and the United States uh, became obsessed with classification and with ranking groups of people uh, according to what they called race. Um, it was, it was uh, so tempting to read the 18th and 19th century understandings, the 20th century understandings, even now the 21st century understandings backwards. But that is not. Scientific
0: and is that just because we're kind of working with our you know current understanding of it and, and yes. trying to apply that okay yes,
1: but we have to understand that even though the mythology around race the the contents of the ideology says this is something scientific and biological and unchanging that's the content of the ideology of race but the ideology of race is an ideology. It's not a biology. And so what people mean by race, what people mean by white race, or what people mean by how many white races there are, that changes over time.
0: That was one of the things I found really interesting about reading your book is I think a lot of times we have a modern understanding of, of whiteness, which You know, I think we think of as somewhat more definitive than it is and a little more static than it is because we don't have as much context on how much it's changed, how many subdivisions there have been. And I think, you know, for, in, in, in reading your book, one of the things I found really interesting is actually one of the, I'd never actually known the origin of the term Caucasian, um, (laughs) and the the fact that it was actually used in reference to those that were best (laughs) fit for slavery. Yeah. Do you mind kind of elaborating on that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So often, um, well, I started I started writing this book. I started thinking about this book because I was perplexed about why white Americans are, you know, white Americans that is, in the Western Hemisphere are called Caucasians. Uh, In fact, I was just talking to um, um, an editor of my French uh, version. And, uh, he said that he was totally flummoxed when he came to the United States. And people talked about him as Caucasian. He's, you know, he's French. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not from the Caucasus. Yeah. You know, what is this? Okay. Uh, and also the Caucasus is a, a place between Europe and Asia. And there, you know, there have been fightings over it forever, but also it's a place that has been subject to uh, the, the the slave trade, the Black yeah. Sea slave trade. And so the people, like the people in Ukraine or in parts of Russia, should I say nourished or supplied, the Black Sea slave trade came from parts of Eurasia, uh, which they called Georgia or the Caucasus.
0: So if I'm understanding you correctly, would a a literal Caucasian person not consider themselves white?
1: I don't know, but probably not if they were in the Caucasus or in Russia. In Russia, the people of the Caucasus are considered black. <laughs> and <laughs> and it's, right. Uh, and yeah. it has it has more to do with there being sort of uh, rough people and, uh, the Cossacks, and, you know, it, it's another story that doesn't fit well in American history. But
0: uh, yeah, the and how... people
1: of the Caucasus who come to the United States quickly learn that they are considered white.
0: Okay, yeah, it's, it's always very interesting to me how... American-centric, my idea of race is, I, I, yeah. I really didn't understand it, even up until kind of like our initial conversation, I had assumed that the idea of whiteness was a lot more universal than no. it is. I, you know, I'm no. a very, when do we first see, is there a particular region or, you know, and I mentioned the Enlightenment period where people, you know, first do self-identify as white?
1: Well, we, we talk about the second half of the 18th century, but you're asking where people self-identify as white. And there, I'm not so sure. Um, I think I would say in the Southern United States, where the black-white dichotomy is of crucial importance. And I think there, you would have people claiming their whiteness. But in in, um, Emerson's um, Massachusetts, for instance, there, the distinctions would be between Celts and Saxons. These are different, at that time, races of white people.
0: Right. And is, is that fair to equate to kind of modern, like English-Irish, is kind of my understanding of those two groups?
1: Well, <laughs> kind of.
0: Kind
1: of. <laughs> um, Irish, Irish people were considered part of the Celtic race, which was a white race. Right. It's not a question of their becoming white. They were white. Uh, Adult men could vote, even if they were very poor, they could vote. Um, So they were considered white. But in the 19th century and in the early 20th century, educated Americans thought that there was more than one white race. This is really hard for Americans now to understand, that part of the changing definitions included the numbers of white races wow. so in uh, in Emerson's time, he thought of a number of white races, and the best one was his, which was Teutonic or Saxon uh some people said anglo saxon, uh which was sort of english uh and the Saxon part was a kind of a part of Germany, and they were very vague about that, so it worked more as Americans of English descent, and they were considered better than Celts who were Irish people or Welsh people or Scottish people.
0: You know, in your book, you talk about the four enlargements of American whiteness. And, yes. and so we we started with the Saxon-Celts uh, kind of initial. Do you mind walking through kind of how whiteness okay. expanded from there?
1: In the early 19th century. Um, the states changed their voting requirements. Uh, So uh, who can vote is go state by state. And by and large, uh, states let anybody who had property vote uh, before the Jacksonian era in the early uh, 19th century. And that's, so in places like Rhode Island or Pennsylvania, Property black men could vote. Uh, the changing, uh, in the, uh, Jacksonian era, the era of the common man, so to speak, added color. And so, uh, um, black men were, for all intents and purposes, disfranchised and poor white men were enfranchised because women were not enfranchised. And then, uh, the Civil War, uh, large numbers of immigrants, notably Irish immigrants, uh served in the Union and uh by that service were able to um, use uh, the Homestead Act, for instance, and move to the west, but also in places like California to drive out the Chinese immigrants who had done a lot of the work in building the railroads. Um, And they specifically um, phrased their their driving out of Chinese workers as white men, not as Irish. Then there's a, a big wave from the late 19th, but especially the early 20th century. Of, of working people, poor people from Eastern and Southern Europe. And they get classified as inferior white races. The, uh, Eastern European Hebrews, that's one race. Northern, uh, Italians, that's another race. Southern Italians, that's another race. slobs that's another race. Greeks, that's another race. With the New Deal of the, of the thirties, and then the national mobilization in the in the Second World War, the 40s, there we have um, the anthropologists, interestingly enough, who become the experts, who explain that, no, there are not many white races. There's only one white race. So there's one white race among the three races. So there's three races. Uh, there's the Caucasians, who's the white race, and then there's the Mongoloids, who are the Asians, and then there are um, the Negroids, and they are people of, of Africa and African descent.
0: What actually prompted those classifications to first happen?
1: Well, classification is part of the Enlightenment. It's part of understanding the world around us. So that was that started you might say kind of innocently, uh, as a way to understand the world. So there were lots of ways to do that. And you mentioned some of them, which were uh, measuring skulls. That was a very popular way because skulls seemed to be more permanent than trying to figure out what somebody's skin color was or eye color could be because people could disagree on, on, you know, what do you call it? But skulls, if you were dead and the skin was off and the hair was off, uh, you could measure kind of pretty well according to what they considered the scientific method. So I didn't use crackpots. Okay. I didn't use uh, wild-eyed racists. I didn't use Klansmen. I used people who were respected in their time as scientists. That was science.
0: The original reason why I kind of had this conversation was I'd had kind of the discussion about is race a social contract or a scientific construct. You know, I had this conversation with my dad and it's, it's not that there isn't, you know, a 23andMe test can show some genetic variation, but it's yeah. where those, where those boundaries are created and the fact that, you know, right now we have a blanket white, you know, that covers all the mm-hmm. different kinds of, mm-hmm. you know, Great different ways.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. And so, and to me, it's like, okay, if, if the boundaries are socially construed, then it doesn't matter what science existed because that's not what's creating, you know, our definitions.
1: I understand the the yearning for certainty, the yearning for who am I, where do I come from. But even if you discover that twenty three percent of your DNA matches uh, that of people from, say, the Caucasus or what is now Nigeria does that make you them? One of the things I learned in the 1960s when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, uh, I graduated in anthropology, and Franz Boas was the reigning uh, uh, expert, and one of his great contributions was decoupling biology from culture, so that biology is one thing, and culture is another, and culture has to do with how people live.
0: And so do you think that we absorb some cultural factors into our definitions of race?
1: Absolutely.
0: What's interesting is is white, and I think you mentioned this in a lot of the modern definition of whiteness, is that in some ways it almost kind of goes beyond, it's gone beyond a, a skin tone, because you can find many light-skinned people from, you know, Syria or from, um, you know, different parts of the world that might not be considered white. And so there does seem to be this very cultural importance to who is classified as white.
1: I would say not only cultural, but also political. You mentioned Syrians. How do people get classified, um, say, in the census or in the law? Um, And the law is the law of naturalization that I'm thinking of. How do people get allowed to naturalize as white? So before 1965, you had to either naturalize as white or black. And that was before, uh, the dismantling of Jim Crow. So it was not advantageous for people coming to the United States to naturalize as black. That, because it carried a lot of handicaps. But, how do you naturalize as white? So <laughs> yeah. this actually went to the Supreme Court a couple of times, um, and I won't take you through that because it's very interesting. But Syrians, a group of Syrians had to sue to be able to naturalize as white. So it's not just science, it's also
0: law. That's, that's very interesting. So it's actually the arbiters of race is our census, is that correct?
1: Um, The census is a policy document, and so it changes every 10 years uh, according to how policy needs change. So people think of the census as scientific, but the census is policy. And uh, one group, for instance, uh, Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, uh, again sued, went to Congress to be considered a race. You know, how scientific is that? That is political. Right. So a lot of our thinking about what is race is political.
0: One thing I actually wanted to talk to you about, so a little bit of context here. So for my uh, mix, my mom is Persian and my dad is is half Korean and half Latvian Jew, which again... Oh, this... wow! <laughs>
1: what an American you are! <laughs> well, that,
0: that's great. I think so as well. Um, but it's interesting because it, it's one of the main reasons why it's always you know the classification of race has always been interesting to me is because when i have to fill out the surveys <laughs> i never knew how to fill it out it's like yeah. am i am i yeah. asian sure yes korean yeah. you know yeah. iran's yeah. in the asia yeah. am i middle yeah. eastern sure yes yeah. am yeah. i white kind of uh-huh.
1: like other like it, it's yeah.
0: really i I'm, yeah. i'll fill out any of the three so yeah um To me, it's interesting because I actually learned um, about halfway, I think I was like 16 or something, that Persians consider themselves Aryan. You know, I never thought of themselves as being white, but they actually, a lot of Persians consider themselves white. They can, you know, they say we're Aryan people. And there's actually, it's interesting because we get lumped in by a lot of Americans with uh, other Middle Easterns, but a lot of Persians are kind of a little bit anti-Arab, to be honest. (laughs) Um, So it's, again, I've, I've seen a lot of those like, you know, I don't want to say hypocrisy because that's, you know, so negative, but I just, it's just interesting seeing a lot of people assume certain things as, 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 taken, um, as a given. And so myself, my mom's actually the lightest member of our family and she's, you know, considered maybe the most brown if you're defining oh, kind of the others a as you t- a say personal the capital. Color. Oh. Exactly. And so yeah. it's always felt very arbitrary to me. The thing I want to touch upon is that classification, particularly in, um, let's say, you know, the SAT, in college applications, government censuses, whoever are people who are forcing you to fill out those boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, do you think that that is an outdated system? Do you think it serves a function? Or do you think that it reinforces kind of, uh, you know, arbitrary racial distinction?
1: Uh, all, all of the above.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> all of the above. Because those, that classification system um, outside of the census, um, where it really, you know, makes a difference like where money goes, where federal money goes, um, I think is rooted in our history of our, our racist history, our white supremacist history, our Jim Crow history, our history of killing black people and uh, uh, separate but not equal, all of that. So, and it gets with people like you, and you're not the first person I've heard of who has such a complicated, uh, yeah, backstory. You know, this is, this is what we are now. Okay. And so the system of classification is breaking down. It's just too complicated. But the people who push to get rid of it, are reactionaries who want to undo affirmative action and affirmative action as one of the weakest reads, but the only one we have practically of redressing historical, uh, injuries of class based on black white race. You know, there, there has been, uh, some concern, uh, that there won't be enough white people, uh, after what 2040 but there will be there always be in our racist society enough white people because the meaning of whiteness is more than just skin color you say that your your Asian your person of color uh, mother is the whitest person so obviously there's more going on there than color yes. so you know, where you go to college, how much money you have, where you live, uh, what gym you go to, what you eat, you know, all of that makes, makes whiteness. And I think that whiteness, uh, has, has already lost a lot of its importance. And I think with Asian-Americans, I'm talking to you from New Jersey, where we have a significant um, proportion of South Asians who can be very brown, but who also can be very well-educated and wealthy. And so those are the markers of whiteness, at least in the past. So brownness and the markers of whiteness can go together in New Jersey. And so it may turn out that that Asian Americans are the new white people. I don't know.
0: You know, correct me if I'm wrong because you have the experience, but, uh, one of the people, one of the things that Americans seem to, to comment on when they travel is that we seem to have, um, a, a really strong emphasis on race, um, particularly kind of the binary white, black that isn't yes. as present in a lot of places. So do you think yes. that our definition of whiteness is, uh, almost a reaction from the need to define blackness for yes. slavery and later segregation?
1: Yes. Uh when I published uh History of the History of White People in two thousand ten, I knew that it was not going to translate into Europe where religious differences have been so much more salient, anti Semitism being the great outlier, but now also, uh, anti-Muslim. So the different, the, the way, uh, Europeans tend to chop themselves up has not been the way Americans have chopped themselves up, uh, largely because of our history of, um, the Atlantic slave trade. So, but recently, since, uh, 2010, a couple of things have happened to make my book, The History of White People, interesting to Europeans because the whole crush of immigrants has changed the way Europeans think about about nation and about difference. And so they're moving toward understanding the American system of white black. Uh, American history is just drenched with blood. And uh, the history of race in America is frightful. Uh, yeah. It's it's awful. However, since, since the 1960s, 70s, 80s, since the changes of the late 20th century, which we have fought over, we have fought, fought, fought each other about this, but we have gone through some of those steps that Europeans are just starting to look at. So Americans with all our bloody history have some lessons, you know, a lot of them are lessons, don't do that, uh, have lessons to teach other people in the world about dealing with others with a big O, capital O, others. And most embracing multiculturalism, embracing multiracialism. So many societies in the world, whether they announce it or not, kind of base their idea of who they are in a kind of blood and soil, uh, uh, not birthright citizenship, but, but ethnic citizenship, racial citizenship, uh, biological citizenship. And, What Americans are moving toward, and maybe Canadians have done it better, is understanding ourselves as multi-ethnic and multi-racial. I mean, this is a country built on immigration and also genocide, unfortunately. And some of that immigration is not immigration that people wanted. But e pluribus unum means out of many, one. And this is very different from many other nations in the world.
0: The last thing I want to ask you, this podcast being called Let's Talk About Race, my intention is to try and have people see their similarities more than their differences and reduce some of the animosity that happens when we become kind of isolated and a little bit echo-chambered. You're the first person I've talked to from a very academic uh, standpoint, and it's very fascinating to hear your perspective. If I could ask you how you might encourage others to go about either something they should do or something they should educate themselves on to you know hopefully encourage us seeing each other as as one. Do you have any suggestions there?
1: Yeah. Um not
0: to talk about race. Interesting. Okay, and, and to my talk point.
1: about race um unless people have educated themselves seems to just bring out the worst in people, uh, you know. Talking in generalities, getting up on high horses, um, talking about things going off half cocked.
0: Because you you prefer to not have, um, you know, ha- half truths and generalities. Um, yeah, used.
1: yeah. Uh, if you want to talk about race, talk about particular instances, and talk from knowing
0: something about what you're talking about? Um, well, I think uh, on that note, I would encourage everyone to read the history of white people, not a history of white people. <laughs> yeah. uh, from every review I've read, it's considered one of the most uh, exhaustive recounts of um, all the instances of, of whiteness as it appears to our history. So again, thank you so much for your time, Professor Painter. Um I really appreciated, you know, learning from you and, and all that you've done. And, and yeah, I you know, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: You're very welcome. I've enjoyed talking to you.